Some of you know this. I grew up here at this church and I went to our kids ministry. But my favorite time of being a young person here at Baby Glen was our youth ministry. And it's a big part of as to why I now lead here at Baby Glen, lead our youth ministry here at Baby Glen. Um, and I loved this time. We did so many fun things, so many great memories. We had times like all-nighters where we would fill up the gym with inflatables. We would go on retreats out to Muskoka and like really all over the place. It was such a great time. Some of my favorite memories of my young life are because of this very youth ministry. I remember this one retreat we went on and we stayed at a hotel, but this hotel was, was very uniquely designed. It kind of was like a motel, but an indoor um, kind of setting was in the middle. And so essentially you have your, your hotel, motel kind of set up. Um, and instead of it being outside, it was underneath an enclosure. And it actually the whole um, outside courtyard area was carpeted. And so you had your gazebo, you had your plants and everything, but it was covered in carpet. It was really cool. Um, I really liked the setup because you could hang out there. We even did some of our small group sessions in that very courtyard. And so in this hotel, in this whole um, area, there was one courtyard uh, special for the girls that was off separated. And then there was the boys section where we had our own courtyard. And it was filled with a whole bunch of other youth groups at that retreat. And it was a lot of fun. It was really cool. You got to meet some new people. But one night while the girls were doing their thing, you know, being nice and, and calm and quiet and talking about whatever, the boys decided that we would challenge all the other youth groups to a pillow fight. And so now picture this, courtyard, set up, everything. You put about 100 boys, like I'm not kidding, about 100 boys in this one enclosed area. They're probably sleep deprived at this point hyped up on sugar, whatever kind of candy that we could find at this hotel. And we were just going at it. It was chaos. This pillow fight was one for the decades. Uh, you, again, 100, 100 young teenage boys going crazy, smacking each other over the head with pillows. One of my friends, he had dislocated his arm before the retreat, okay? So his parents weren't gonna get upset at him for being in this pillow fight, but he dislocated his arm. He was in there with one arm, swinging away with his pillow. It was crazy. Pillow or feathers were flying everywhere. Kids screaming. I think at one point I heard trumpets. Like it was, it was mayhem, it was pandemonium. It was a lot of fun. But the crazy part about all of this is that while we were going crazy um, and there was chaos and we were smacking each other over the heads with pillows, in the very middle of it all was our fearless youth pastor filming all of it. And so you could probably still find this video on YouTube of young Brandon going crazy, smacking people over the head with pillows, but we had a lot of fun. That time was, will always be uh, cemented in my mind. But this youth group wasn't just all about having fun, right? Yes, we built some great friendships, but we also got to experience God's love. And it really felt like we were gonna take over the world. Like there's, there was so much hope, there was so much encouragement in us that now we have experienced God's love, now we are gonna go out and we had this purpose and we were gonna go on mission for God and we did some really, really cool things. We, we put together uh, this concert called the End Poverty Concert where we had really notable bands, some really high level talent uh, performing at this concert. Where we'd raise money um, to help those in need. Or we put, a, put together a youth rally here at this church where hundreds of students from all across the GTA filtered into our worship center and they were able to hear the good news about Good Friday 
and the gospel. We did some really great things. And at some point, we were actually on the news, which was really cool. It really felt like we were set up to do some amazing things. Like I said, it was one of the greatest times of my life and, and why I do what I do today, because I want to see the young people of, of this generation be able to do some really amazing things and help other people experience God's love and their creative purpose in Him. But then we graduated. And some of us, we moved to different areas. And, and with that came new friends. And, and we started moving away from the faith. A lot of them stopped attending our church and, and church as, as, a, as a whole. They stopped really caring about God and, and not really living out that purpose that we have. And, and we have different reasons as to why. And like I said, it, or like you may know, it is kind of a, a common trend for just all millennials that grew up in the church that they've kind of moved away and, and don't see church as, as something that's important or Christianity or God is something important at all. And it's tough to say where all of my friends and all these people, uh, where they ended up in and, and even where they're at now, but it just felt like we had all this momentum, all this potential to do something great and that God had built this fire in us and, and that we were gonna really do some amazing things and. All that's left of that fire is just a few coals. Like even in this very church, there's only a couple of us that still attend Bayview Glen to be real. And it's hard to think that maybe we squandered something, something great. That maybe it's, it's our fault or maybe there was something wrong with the way that we did youth group. And I often catch myself thinking about those times, especially now that I'm in control of this youth group or I have at least some leverage or leadership over this youth group. Maybe there's something new I can do. Maybe there's something I can tweak and, and try and do something different so that that doesn't happen again. But I often think maybe we squandered something great. Maybe we wasted the potential we had as a youth group. And so when we think of squandering potential, maybe you know someone that has squandered potential. Maybe that's your own story where you felt like you were really built up to do some amazing things and you're kind of just looking around, not really knowing what's going on, not really having lived out the beautiful dreams and ideas that you had for your life. Maybe we, I think we all know someone that's wasted their potential at least. Maybe it was a great athlete who was winning all the awards and, and really set up to do some amazing things who never really panned out or their, life, their career never panned out. Or maybe it's a brilliant young person who won all these awards in high school, but they got caught up in the wrong crowd. Or, or maybe you have a small business and before COVID, it was really starting to build momentum and it was, you were really getting excited for what this small business that your, your endeavor could turn into. And then COVID came and really took everything out from underneath you. And you're left wondering, like, what the heck? What the heck? And it feels like you've lost everything. It can be heart-wrenching when you think of the potential that something may have had, that someone may have had. It can be hard to think about the dreams and the, and the hopes that you may have had for your own self or for someone else and to see that be squandered. And from that, that really big fire that you or someone else was building, all that's left are a couple of coals. And you look around wondering what could have been or maybe wondering why does it happen? 
And there's so many stories around our world and where we can look at people who are really built up to do amazing things and, and they actually did succeed, right? I think of some famous athletes like LeBron James. What are you, whatever you think about him, I know a lot of people aren't a big fan of him. He had a lot of potential and for the most part has lived up to that and probably surpassed that. So many athletes, so many young child prodigies who've actually gone on to do great things, but there are so many stories of people who have had all the opportunities and they kind of just let it fall to the wayside and aren't really doing much with their life. I think of a young man, Robert Pierce. He's no longer with us on this planet, but he was a young man who grew up in really hard times. He has, there's a book out, a little biography on him. And he grew up in some really hard times. His father was a drug dealer, but his mom was awesome and, and really worked, worked her butt off to get him into a great school and to put him into some great opportunities. Uh, so much to the point that he was able to earn his way into Yale University, where he majored in molecular biophysics and biochemistry. And what's really cool is uh, a bank executive, Charles Cawley, sponsored him so that he could go into university. See, this guy was set up for success. He was a brilliant young man. He was at Yale. He was working on a molecular and biochemistry degree. And he even passed and he was able to work in cancer and infectious disease or in an infectious disease laboratory. But unfortunately, with all this potential this guy had, with all, all the resources, all the people backing him and supporting him, Pierce got back into the drug industry. Pierce was able to make about $100,000 in marijuana sales. That he was able to put all this money together while he was still, while he had all these people backing him up and, and supporting him and encouraging him to do so much more with his life than what his father and what his, his community was doing. But unfortunately, he fell back into that old way of living and, and kind of went back into the streets and found himself murdered at the age of 30. See, all this potential, all these people supporting him, all these people backing him, wasted. And it's hard to think about wasted potential. And there's so many stories like that. Maybe you know someone in your own life who uh, has a story like that, where they had people backing them. They had all the resources that they needed to succeed in life and to really make a name for themselves or make a life for themselves just to see it all fall to the wayside. It's hard. It's really, really hard. And, and you think about, well, if someone's so great, someone's so powerful, someone who is able to do so much in the little, little they had. If someone with so much knowledge or resources, like I said, if someone like that could fail, then what about us? It makes you kind of lose hope. It makes you lose hope in, in even how you want to live out your own life. And I know for some of you, you see a story like that and it just makes you want to work harder. But I know for a lot of us, it makes us not even want to try. And, and let, me be, let me be honest and, and real here. As a young man working in ministry, in my, what, four years of working in full-time ministry, I have heard so many stories of, of great men of God, some people that I looked up to personally, some people that I read, read about, that I listen to, sermons that I listen to, some of these great pastors and men of God, leaders in our church, 
it is so often to hear stories of how they have failed and it makes me think about myself and it makes me think, why do I even do this? Like these are real questions that I ask and, pe- and that I have to approach other people with like, if these people are failing, if these people who are so much smarter than me, who have so much access, so much, um, who have access to so many greater uh, resources and people around them, who have communities around them, love uh, and know their Bible so much better than I do. If these great men and women of God are failing, then what about me? Like, is there, is there hope in all this? Like, why do we do all of this? To all these people that had all this potential and all this momentum for them, if they can fail, then, then what about us? What about me? And it can, it can, I get, I get why people walk away from faith entirely. When they see so many of these great people hurt people, lie, cheat, steal, all this potential, all this momentum going for them, and they hurt people, and they walk away from the faith. It can be heart-wrenching. And maybe sometimes it isn't an individual, maybe it's a whole group of people who wasted their potential. Like the Maple Leafs. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I know some of you guys do not do not click away. Do not click away, Maple Leafs fans. I promise there's still hope for you guys. Whether or not believe that is is another story. But um, what if it wasn't? What if it's not just people? What if it's an entire group of people? What if it's an entire nation who had all this potential and and failed? And it's not just a few people that it's affected, but whole world that it affected. And that's where we've come to in our study in Romans. See, we've been talking about the people of Israel and we talked about them in the past. But see, Israel's purpose in being God's chosen people is to reflect God's image to the whole world. See, it wasn't just that they were chosen so that they could do and experience the blessings that God had for them. Yes, that's a part of it. But they were also called to reflect God's image to their neighbors, to the surrounding nations around them. And there were moments when that happened, for sure. Israel has done some great things, but the Old Testament is littered with Israel's failures to do so. See, instead of choosing to worship God fully, they chose to worship other things and and not bear God's image to their neighbors. And so when you read about Israel, you think about their wasted potential, how they were set up. And Paul's going to talk about how they've been set up to do some great things, but they too failed. They too let their potential, all this momentum that they had, all this, all these promises and, and, and literally having God on their side, they let that go by the wayside. And so we're starting off our few, a few verses in Romans chapter 9 and and this chapter is really thick theologically. I don't have to tell you if you've studied Romans, especially Romans 9, 10, 11, you see how thick it is theologically. There's a lot of deep thinking that we're going to have to navigate through. But I find it how interesting how Paul is actually going to start all of this off. How he's going to start off all this deep thinking that we're about to do with some deep feeling. Let's start it off. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that we have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according 
to the flesh. See, before Paul thinks about how to handle Israel's future, he feels it first. And so right off the get-go, instead of going straight into deep thinking, he starts off with deep feeling. And that reminds us, and it reminds me that before we think deeply, we need to feel it deeply. Before we can start getting going on to understanding all these really powerful theological concepts, a lot of maybe debatable theological concepts. Paul wants us, to, wants us to start off by feeling it deeply, to feel the great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Paul wants us to stop and feel with him, feel for the lost, feel for his family. And for some of you, you know what Paul's going through. Maybe you have family, friends who are so close to you who do not know the Lord, and you understand exactly what Paul's talking about with having this great sorrow and feeling deeply for them, for the people that are closest in your life that are not walking in the Lord. And, and maybe they were once Christian. Maybe they used to attend church with you. Some of my closest friends used to be in this very youth group who are no longer walking with the, with the Lord, and it's one of my biggest heartaches. Some of my closest friends, even to this day, don't know God and his love. And I feel that as a, as a feeler myself, Myers-Briggs, as a feeler, I feel it. Like I feel that deeply and it, it, it grieves me and I feel with Paul this great sorrow. But for me, my, as much as I may feel and as much as I want to understand and lament and grieve some of those friends and, and family who do not know God, my natural reaction and knee-jerk is to figure out, okay, well, what do we do? Like, what do we do? Especially working in ministry, I see students all around me who do not know about Jesus, who do not know about God, and, and students are walking away from the church in droves. They're walking away, asking, not even caring about the church anymore. I was talking to, to one of my leaders, and they were talking to one of their students, and we were talking about, uh, about the big questions that we may have about church and we're trying to encourage them to ask these questions and, and know that there are answers to their biggest questions. But some of your students who are just looking at this and, and as we ask them and encourage them to ask questions, they don't even care about the church. That they feel like this is a, a common trend as we read about students and young people right now, this Generation Z, as, as, uh, as sociologists would call it. They feel like the church, young people think that the church is irrelevant. That doesn't even matter. That church isn't even a good place. It's not even a, a place that's, that's nice and, and cute and you go to worship. That church is actually not a good place and it's a bad thing. We see stories and, and things come up in the news about how the church is not helping people, but hurting them. And so our young people are looking at this and, and reading this and seeing this on social media and all this. And their, their depiction of the church is no longer this place of, of hope, this great place that I was able to experience and me and my friends were able to experience. But they see a church who's made mistakes in the past, but is also making mistakes right now. And they feel like the church is no longer relevant. Like this is the state that we're in. And so my knee-jerk reaction is to move straight to the solution. Like how do we fix this? How do we change their, the students' perspective of the church? And these are good things. And, and these are things that, I need to, that we need to be actioning and that we need to be implementing into, the, into church and, and how we're winning students back to the church and, and to the faith. And we do need to be thinking about how we can help these students understand that the church is a place for them and that this place is a place of love. And yes, there are mistakes that are made, but this is a place 
of love and that they can experience God's love and there's created purpose for them. And so my knee-jerk reaction is, again, to move to a solution, but I love that Paul wants us to stop, to think, and take a moment just to lament, just to feel it, to allow ourselves to connect our heart with our mind, to understand that it's okay to, to feel this sorrow and anguish. And, and those are not light words, and maybe those are words that you don't use, sorrow and anguish, but the point of it is to remind ourselves that this is also a matter of your heart and that he, in the same way that Paul may feel deeply for his people, for his family, for his fellow um, Jewish brothers and sisters, he feels for them. That's the same posture. And the first thing that we need to be do that need to do is that before we can think deeply, before we can act powerfully, we need to feel deeply. And if you don't believe that Paul really cares about it, the next verse, verse 3, shows just how real Paul is about it. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul is willing to give it all up. He's willing to give it all up. And the really cool thing is, as Paul, being a Jew himself, growing up as a Jew, He's actually mirroring the same posture that Moses had over Israel. If you remember back, Israel had set up the golden calf, right? We read in Exodus chapter 32, verses 30 to 32, this is what it says. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But this is the posture in, in this next verse, the posture that Paul takes and what he's mirroring as well. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. And so in the same way that Moses cares so much that he's willing to give it all up, Paul shows that same, shows that same posture and how he also cares so deeply about Israel and how Israel has distanced themselves from God that he would even be willing to do the same thing that Jesus did in dying for them. In Galatians, it explains how Christ bore the curse on the tree and cross. And so the same way that Jesus died for us, Paul shows his same care and shows his same love and that he also too was willing to suffer physically. And, and willing to bear in all these all his missionary travels, he was w willing to be thrown in jail. He was able to go through all this suffering in the same way that that Moses and Jesus before him would. And remember that when Paul was was traveling, and every time he would go to a new place, he was always known for going to the synagogue first and really living out that motto: to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. See, I, I love that Paul reminds his audience that, that he is also a Jew, that as, he's reading, as this letter is being read out to uh, both the Gentiles and the Jews, that he's reminding them that I too am a Jew, just like you, to my brothers and sisters, my brothers and kinsmen, as he says in verse 3, that he is still a Jew and that he has not forgotten them and that he cares deeply for them. And so before we can think deeply, we need to feel deeply. And this is a great reminder for ourselves to allow ourselves to feel 
to remind ourselves that there are eternal consequences and that we should be also grieving the people around us who do not know about Jesus, who have not experienced his love and his purpose for them. And so my question to you, to truly think about, does this grieve you? Like, does the state of the people around us who are moving away from the church, who, like our students, feel that the church is, is no longer relevant, it's not even a good place, like, does this grieve you? Like, do you care so deeply about their eternal future, their eternal consequences out there? Like, do you feel the sorrow and the anguish? Like, take a moment right now to think about that. Does, do you feel like the people in your lives who don't know Jesus, who, whose eternity is not based in hope? When you think about them, do you feel that great sorrow, that great anguish? And, and don't worry about feeling this for a whole group of people. Don't think about this as, as thinking about a whole nation, like we may think about how Canada is becoming so post-post-Christian. Think about just the people, the few close people in your own life. Think about the few people that you live, live with or do life with who don't know Jesus. And ask the Lord to deepen your burden right now. And as we keep going, may this still be in your heart. Maybe that's the one thing that you take away from this is that God would deepen your burden, deepen your feeling, and that you would care deeply, that you'd be reminded. Maybe you cared about them before. Maybe this was a huge thing for you and you've kind of let it fall over and you don't really care about it. May God renew that feeling that you would truly, truly care and that before you start thinking about ways to do this and, and the best way to, to maybe convert your friend and, and to present the gospel, which are good things. I'm not trying to take anything away. Maybe God can start by deepening your feeling and your care for them and the burden that you may have. Paul's going to continue these next couple of verses with well, with how well Israel had it. So we continue in verse 4. It says this, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Paul here gives the hard facts. This is how good Israel had it. This is how good Israel had it. These are all the privileges, and we're going to go through all of them quickly, but these are all the privileges. This is how good Paul or, or Israel had been set up. That one, they had the adoption, that God created the world, but he chose this very specific family, this very specific group, starting with Abram. And he adopted them into his family and they became, they had the status of God's chosen people. And not only justified by faith, but welcomed into a new family as God, as their father. Like that's such a great place to start from, that you are now God's people. They were also given the glory, the glory, and that God's presence was with them. That God would send prophets, that God would literally be in their midst. They had God's glory. They also had the covenant, and there's covenants as we read in the, in the Old Testament, starting again with Abram and with people like David, where God would make covenants with them. 
And these, these covenants, the heart of them were to, to bless them so that they would also be a blessing to all nations. And that by their obedience to the, to the law, as, we, as we're going to have here, and, the, and their way that they worship the holy God, that they would be a blessing and that it was not just for them to keep to themselves, but they would reflect this image of who God was to their neighbors and to their surrounding nations. And so they had the law, a way to live out their life and a way to become more like God and to reflect that image to the surrounding nations. That they now had worship. And, and when we talk about worship, we know that of it as a holistic way of living, of how their whole life was called to, to, to worship God. But they even had the, the sacrificial system. When, when they would sin, they would have a way to atone for that sin through animal sacrifice. And so God gave them that as well. They've been set up for that. And last thing is the promises and, and how pr- God had given promises to Israel through Abraham and, and all these other patriarchs. And, and so he actually walked us through some of those last time. And then one of the great parts about being on a teaching team is that I can just rehash and, and bring back what he already talked about. And so last time, Paul, ta- or not Paul, Sawyer, Sawyer talked about how Israel was promised the Holy Spirit to keep the law and how Israel had the promise of the future resurrection. Israel was God's son or how Israel was promised an inheritance or Israel was God's people and the only foreknown among the nations or how God promised never to forsake Israel. There's all these promises in the Old Testament that that Paul is, is referring to here and how God, again, gave all these things. God set up Israel in this way. And, and it makes me think, well, why, why, Paul, why are you bringing all this stuff up? Like why tell us about how good Israel had it? Well, let's go back and understand the context of, of, of Paul and Rome at this time see this letter is written to the people of rome and the really cool thing about rome and and the early church is that a lot of gentiles were coming to faith that at one at some point there were even more gentiles than actual jews and how jews at this time were actually in opposition they were the some of the biggest uh people fighting against jesus and this jesus movement and so one of the questions, especially seeing as Paul was referred to as the apostle of the Gentiles, one of the biggest questions is, well, what about the Jews? Like, what about us as, as God's chosen people? Like, are we no longer these chosen people? Like, these are the questions that were coming up. Had God abandoned his people? Had he given up on Israel? Are we no longer his people? These are the questions. Reading about the Gentiles and seeing all the Gentiles coming to faith, what does that say about God's original promise? What does that say about God and what he promised in the Old Testament? What does that say? What does that mean for them? Well, Paul brings up all this. He, he shows how much momentum, how much potential Israel had, all the blessings that God had for them. He brings that all up to remind, remind us that God, God's promises, actually, they never fail. And we're supposed to be in Romans chapter 1 to 5 today, but I'm just going to steal really quickly from the next uh, passage uh, or the next section in, in verse number 6. And I'm sorry to whoever is preaching after me that I'm stealing some of your verses, but in verse 6 it says this, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. 
the word of God, God's promises, God's hope for Israel, God calling Israel to be his people, that has not failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And that last sentence, that's going to lead us into all these things about how God's promises never fail. But that is our big point for today. That is our main point. That is what Paul has led us up to in this first, in these first few verses, that God's promises never fail. That God's promises never fail. And I know this may not be this huge groundbreaking thing for you and you've known this and you've heard this growing up, but this is such an important reminder for us that God's promises never fail. Paul will go on to explain himself and, and why this is true, but he wants to remind us that it was never about Israel's genealogy. That's what that last sentence is talking about, that it was never about Israel's genealogy, but about their faith in God. And in the same way, it was never about your past. It's never about your last name and the things that have happened in your past or your genealogy or even in your own current life. It's never about your past mistakes or the way that you may have been unfaithful to God, but about your current faith in him right now. God still loves Israel and, and God's open embrace to the rest of the world is not to shame Israel, but to remind us that it, it was never about your lineage. It was never about your DNA. It was always about God being faithful because God's promises never fail. Again, Paul will explain all of this in, in greater detail. And if, and if you want to read ahead, by all means, go ahead. But Paul is looking to reassure and redefine Israel's identity. That as his brothers and sisters, his kinsmen, his fellow Jews are looking around and wondering about this promise, he wants to reassure that God has not failed them, that God's promises for them have not failed, and that their identity is reassured and their identity is redefined because it may not have been what the Jewish people back in the day thought their life was going to look like. But these promises, they, he didn't realize, but they did not realize how these promises were actually going to come to fruition. And that how God's love was so much greater than his, just his people, that for just the lineage that Paul, or Paul uh, that is in the Bible, but how his love was so much bigger than that. It was, it was, his love was for all nations, for all peoples, for the Gentiles. And we get to be beneficiaries of that because if you're like me and, and, and like most people, we are not Jewish. Like I'm not in, in, in that lineage. I'm not a descendant of Abraham, most likely. Uh, like if I go into my Ancestry.com and I put in all, all the details, I'm more likely to be related to, to Gandhi or, or Manny Pacquiao before I'm related to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. There's probably not a Jewish bone in my body, but because of Jesus, I'm now a part of that family. I now get to be, benef uh, be a beneficiary of all the blessings and promises that God had for his people. I received the benefits and promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the really cool thing is the very existence of the global church, which is predominantly Gentiles, it shows that in spite of Israel's future in, or failure, in spite of Israel turning and worshiping other things and, and constantly failing, as we see in the Old Testament, despite that, the covenant blessings of Abraham and David to bless all nations have come true. That even though Israel had all this potential, all this momentum for them, and they failed and they squandered it, 
God's promises, God's covenant still rang true and still uh, came true. And all these nations were blessed. That's why we can be so sure that God's word did not and will not fail. God's word does not fail and it doesn't fail you, it doesn't fail me, it doesn't fail this world that we live in, even despite the state of, of what we may see and, and how people are moving away from the church and don't see the church as a place that is good. God's word still reigns true. And this encouraged me because the God who once called me and my friends who grew up in this very youth group, he has not abandoned us either. He has a purpose for our lives and, and maybe I'll never get to see it. Maybe I won't actually see how God is still loving them and, and still working on, on my friends back in the day. Maybe I, I'll never understand just how God is working in their lives, but I'm reminded by this, by these verses, that God's promises never fail. That the people that God has called, that, that the people that God's hearts that he's touched, that doesn't just go away. That God's promises for us never fail. And, and we've talked about how we're adopted in and grafted into this family. And we get to experience same of the same, some of the same privileges and promises that Israel had. How we've now been adopted and we get to experience God's glory. How now we have the covenant, the law, the covenant and the law to guide us to be more like Jesus. And how Jesus models how we can now worship. And that last one, promises. The promises look different and how they were actually fulfilled may have looked different, different than how the Jewish people may have expected, but God's promise still never failed. It was actually so much bigger than they even had even imagined in this person of Jesus and in the kingdom that he was able to bring down on earth. I got a chance to, to catch up with, to, to call one of my friends who is a youth leader now in this youth group. And she was also one person that grew up with me in this youth group and got to experience some of the very same things that I did. And, and she was able to encourage me because I, I called her and I was talking about like, it feels like we had all this momentum. Like it feels like we had all this, all this, all these great things going for us and that it just fizzled out. And she was able to encourage me and, and to say, hey, Brandon, you don't know what's going on in these people's lives. Like you don't know how God is working, but we do know that he is working. We know that God's promises never fail. And then she was actually even able to share some stories of people that I had maybe forgotten about and how, yes, they had walked away from the Lord, but how they were taking steps to, be, to, to start going to church again, to start experiencing his love and really work on their relationship with God. And, and, and it reminded me just, I don't know all these things that I can be reminded that God's promises never fail, that God's love for us never fails. I remember talking to, to a mentor about how, uh, about all these prominent leaders. And in this time I was, I was reading all these things about how the church leaders were failing us, like I talked about earlier on. And I shared about how discouraged I was and how I was kind of just, what about me? Like all these great, all these great leaders failed, what about me? But I was encouraged that even when someone may give up on God, when someone may hurt someone and, and do it in God's name, and, or if they walk away from the faith, even when they give up on God, God does not give up on them. That God doesn't, even when we can give up on God, God does not give up on us. 
And maybe that's you. Maybe, you, maybe you've taken a step away from the church because you've only seen the hurt and confusion and the dysfunction of the church. Maybe that's your lived experience where you maybe you worked or served in the church or you were attending a church and all you saw was the drama of church that happens. And, and you put a lot of hopes in the church and, and you've just left it because you've been disappointed. And I get it. And, and I'm sorry if you've been hurt. I'm sorry if the church has hurt you in the past. And, and I truly, truly mean that. But, but Jesus loves the church. He calls it his bride, that the church, us, we are his bride. And he calls us to bear with one another and fight for unity. We won't always be perfect. The church will not always be perfect. Bayview Glen will not always do things correctly. We will not always be perfect, perfect, but we serve a perfect father who always gets it right because his promises never fail. And so if that's you and, and you've, you know, you've kind of given up on church and you've kind of given up on, on the hope that the church is supposed to hold and hope that the church is supposed to point us forward to, would you be reminded that God has not given up on us, that the church is his bride, that even when we may fail or, or that we may mess things up, that we serve a perfect father who always gets it right and that his promises, they never fail. Amen. Let me end off with two of my favorite verses and then we'll close in prayer. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And I love that because it is within God's very nature to be faithful to us. Even when we can't see it, even when we don't want it, even when we're unfaithful and we don't care about God, we don't care about his church, we don't care about his people, we don't care about his promises, even when we're in that state where when we're so far away from him, he is still faithful. That is it in his very nature to be faithful to us. The second thing that, that I love to remind myself of is in Philippians chapter one, verse six, it says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Because it all goes back to Jesus. He loves his church. He loves his people. And what God has started in us as, as his church will be brought to completion. You can count on it. It's because God has shown us time and time again, even when Israel failed, he was still able to fulfill his promises. And that even when things look bad, even in when the state of the church is, is looking bleak, that we are not in a position of fear, but that we're actually in a position of victory. And for, for us, that we don't act out of a position of, of fear, but of victory. Because God's love for us has not left. He's not abandoned us, that he loves us truly and he's right beside us. Even when the state of the church and, and people is so bleak, God still loves us, that his promises never fail, and that the good work that he started, that he will bring it to completion. And that's hope that we have and that hope that we can be assured in. Let's pray. God, I pray for a heart of feeling that we would truly feel for those around us who, whose hope, whose eternity is not in you. 
God, I pray for our family members, our friends around us. God, would they come to know you? But God, first, would you give us a heart that cares and feels deeply for them, that we, we may know all these things and we can get into these theological debates. But God, will we first start with feeling deeply for these people? God, would you transform our heart? Would you give us a heart that yearns to see our friends and family and our neighbors and the people that we live with and work with? God, would you give us a heart that yearns for them, for their salvation? God, would we start there? But God, that we would also be reminded that no matter what we may face, no matter what the state is of our lives and our faith and the, the faith of the people around us, God, that you would know that we would know that you never fail us, that you never abandon us, that your promises never fail. That in the same way that despite Israel's failures, despite them turning away from you time and time again, God, that you were still faithful to them, that the good work that you started in them, the good work that you started in us, will be brought to completion. And that we know that you never fail us, God. Would you remind us of that? Would that sink in deep and that we would live that out? That we would live out of this position of, of victory and not fear. God, we thank you for this. We thank you for your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.